Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. This episode is the third and final part of our three-part series about the pathway of medical students pursuing dermatology. Today, I talk with Dr. Cece Topham, a PGY2 dermatology resident at the University of Utah and previous DIGA president. Dr. Topham and I discuss applying to away rotations, how to crush your auditions, applying to residency, and more. Dr. Topham is a wealth of knowledge and we hope this episode helps you navigate the final year of medical school. Well, welcome to the show. This is, today we have with us Dr. Cece Tofum. We're super excited to have her. She is a past uh, president of DIGA, and um, she is currently a resident at the University of Utah. And she's here today to talk to us about everything fourth year of medical school. Um, Things from applying into dermatology, doing your audition rotations, Aris applications, being successful on your interviews. We're super excited to have her. Dr. Tofum, thanks for coming to the show. Is there anything else you wanted to add about your past um, that you can introduce yourself with? Hi, Johnny. Yeah, and it's actually pronounced Topham. No worries. Everyone says Tofum. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, like Johnny mentioned, I'm a PGY2, so a first-year dermatology resident at the University of Utah, which is where I went to medical school. Um, the only other piece that's missing, I did a research year between third and fourth year of medical school at Oregon Health and Science University. Um, so that was kind of my my personal five-year path to, to dermatology. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Topham. So it's Topham. It's like Topham, whatever. Topham, Utah, Topham. Topham Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get it. We'll get it. But before we did dive in, I would love to hear why, you know, everybody loves to hear why dermatology. So what brought you to dermatology? What's kind of your story there? Yeah, so I, you know, I was lucky in that I got exposed to Durham pretty early on in medical school. So I, I went in knowing that dermatology was cool because I shadowed a bunch of people. My uncle was actually a dermatologist here in Salt Lake City. Um, So I kind of grew up around him and being exposed to the field of dermatology. Uh, Going into medical school, I got involved pretty early. And then the more I learned about it, the more I loved it. And um I think for me, the biggest thing is that derm is just internal medicine on the skin. You know, it's just an external manifestation of things that are going on internally. I'm particularly interested in complex med derm and autoimmune dermatology. So I I love the um, collaboration with other specialties in medicine. Another thing that really interests me and continues to interest me in residency is that no day is alike. You know, we have outpatient and then we have inpatient, which is so different from outpatient. Um, and then we have cool procedures. Even if you don't do MOs, you can dabble in procedures, which is, it's just really cool. It's a unique specialty where you, you really get to do a lot of, a lot of everything. And then you see the, you know, acute diseases and the chronic diseases. So that's what I love about it. And I love like everyone that it's a visual, a visual field and you can see what the rash, you know, see visually what your pathology is. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that a lot. There's some general themes there that you hear a lot throughout, throughout when you're talking to dermatologists about what they love. Do you feel, um, it it seems like in residency, it's great opportunity because you get the most variety. Do you feel like once you get into private practice, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not what you're going to do, um, long-term, but, uh, when when physicians do start private practice, do they see less of that variety as dermatologists? And is is it just acne and such? Oh, that's interesting. Um, my, I guess my, so my uncle was in private practice and I, I feel that most of his practice was more general dermatology. He didn't see a lot of those, uh, you know, complex rashes that walk into the door just because there was a, a large academic institution up the hill from where he worked. Um, the other dermatologist I shadowed, I felt like he saw some more complex med derm. So I think you can really shape, you know, based on the location where the private practice is um, and based on what you want in your practice, I think over time you can really shape it to be what you want it to be. Um, a group of our physician or a group of our my co-residents are actually going up to work in Billings, Montana. One of them in particular is interested in doing some complex med derm. 
um, but not having it be her full, whole focus. So she's just going to kind of, you know, um, gather those patients as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's across all specialties. I'm in the family medicine clinic right now doing my core rotations and they tell me the same thing. You know, there's family med physicians who are still in rural, rural parts of Texas, still doing surgeries, you know, um, or they're really focused on dermatology. So, yeah. 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 Well, um, one of the, we, we kind of want to dive in to talk about things that happen during fourth year of medical school. One of the big things that happens during the fourth year of medical school is audition rotations, right? And for me, these are a little scary because you go in and it's like this two week, four week long interview, 24 seven. You're always, you're always going, right? Um, But before that, there's some planning. There's some planning that goes into it. When did you start planning your audition rotations? Does that start, you know, October, your third year, um, February, March, your third year, when VSAS opens, when does that happen? Yeah. So again, I'm kind of a unique situation, although I think this is becoming more common, but I had that research year, which allotted me, you know, a full extra year to think about these sorts of things. Um, I'm a planner and I'm a very organized person, very A type, which I think a lot of people are in Durham, not everyone. Um, But it really, at the end of my third year, thinking about applying to dermatology just really stressed me out. I had already planned on my research year at that point. Um, but I don't think I would have been ready to apply just because of the person I am. Uh, so it was helpful for me to have the extra year to really like talk with my mentors, uh, get their advice on programs that would be a good fit for me. Because I think if you have a good mentor, they will they will be honest with you about personality fit. I think that's a really key piece in residency. Um, and going to conferences, meeting people from those programs. So I, I had some time to think about it. Um, I would say I started seriously thinking about it during December, January of my research year. So that would correlate to maybe December, January of third year. And then ESAS, I believe, opened then in March. Is that still the case? Um, You know, I was looking a little online. It sounded like, I'm not sure. I think it might vary from year to year, but some people say February, but programs don't accept applications till March. It seems like there's some variance, but yeah, around that time frame. February, March. Yeah. Um, I applied, I think I applied pretty broadly to about eight programs. And the difficult thing, and I think I'm going a little ahead in the questions, but the difficult thing is you hear back from some programs and not others. Uh, so you have to be really willing to, and they want, they want kind of um, an answer as to your decision on the away rotation. So you have to be pretty willing to uh, go to, the programs you apply to, or be willing to say no. And I've, I've talked with some people that they feel that that costs them an interview at that program, though. Then I've talked to program directors who say that they don't hold that against students when they don't accept the away rotation. Yeah, that's a hard one, because I, I can see program directors, you know, not holding that against somebody. But then whoever took that spot instead of them, it's much easier to offer them the rota- or the interview because you've seen them and you know them and you've yeah. worked with them in clinic. Right. So, and you may not yeah. even end up getting the away rotation of the program. You're a little bit more interested in. So yeah. it's kind of a, kind of a sticky situation. Yeah. So, so I was reading a little bit before um, we got on and I don't know if this has changed. I'll need to do a little bit of research, but it sounds like there's programs that do rotations, audition rotations and that process through VSAS. And then it sounds like there are some programs that don't do VSAS. Did you apply to any of those programs? Do you know anything about that? I didn't. I just used VSAS. Um, For the programs I was specifically interested in, which I've kind of already alluded to, I did have um, the mentor and the the person I was connected to that had, you know, done residency at that program or had a friend at that program. I had them personally reach out on my behalf. Um, just to tell them that I was interested in the program and why I'd be a good fit and why I was particularly interested. So I didn't, I did not apply. I don't think that was the case when I was applying that there were, there was, there were all alternate routes to the way. Mm. Cool. Cool. That's probably a good route to go is to, to really, um, mentorship is so important throughout all aspects of medicine, right? It helps us to be better at our research, better in our education better in our clinical practice. But as applicants applying, it seems like mentorship is important because you have those connections to say, to have somebody to vouch for you and say, you know, this person would be a great fit for your program. 
you know, consider them for an audition. Um, do you have any tips for doing that? And for, um, asking your mentors to, uh, essentially put their necks out for you? Yeah, it's, it's a little different for away rotations and for interviews. And for interviews, I would say I did it for both. Um, I'll speak to the away rotations first. I, um, I, like I said, I, I think I applied to eight away rotations. I didn't have connections at all of them, but I did have a particular reason why I wanted to go to each of the programs. The places I did have connections, I just emailed the faculty uh, member, both at OHSU and Utah. I used met mentors at both programs for this and just said, you know, I know you trained at this program. Um, I'm really interested in such and such path they have for complex med derm or you know, their, their focus, um, and presence in the most field, uh, you know, your specific reason for wanting to go to that program, because people feel very connected to the place that they trained, the place they did residency, and they don't want to go out on a limb, um, for you, unless you are genuine and sincere in your, in your desires to, you know, go there and experience the program. Yeah. So that's what I would say for a ways, I guess we can get to the interview portion later. No, and I appreciate it. Um, so, so you did eight. Is there a magic number? Is it just as many as you can? Is it as you know? Is is there a point where there's diminishing returns and you should you know use some of your electives for other you know for other rotations like rheumatology or plastics or what are your thoughts there? So I only did two. I only did two away rotations. I applied to about eight, and I don't know if there's a magic number. That is such a good question, and I wish that it was better defined. Um, because I think I only got, I think I only got four invites. So it's kind of a balance of over applying and under applying, because if you are over applying, then you get too many invitations and then you have to turn down programs. If you are under applying, then you have to scramble at the last second when they've already probably filled a lot of their positions for away rotations, especially now in this situation with the, you know, pandemic and the limited spots for away rotations. Um, but what I will say, as soon as I did accept those two away rotations, I immediately went into VSAS and retracted all my other all my other applications. So then at that point, regardless of where they are in the review process, they'll know that, you know, I filled those spots in my schedule and they don't need to consider me anymore. And I, I think that's a lot better than declining the invitation because yeah. they, they understand that you only have limited time and, and um, they value that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's probably a no go to to keep those open and then get one that you'd rather have, right? And then turn down an uh, an audition that you'd already accepted. That seems to me like a big red flag for any for any I program. Would, you know, I would agree with you, Johnny, but I think there are varying opinions on that. I have heard okay. both sides of the story. Um, it, you have to. I think ultimately, you have to decide: Are you going to feel uh, really, are you going to feel like you missed out if you don't get an interview at the program that you're ultimately going to yeah, like rescind your acceptance? Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That's hard. And, and I, when I talk to dermatologists, they're all reasonable, right? Like they understand that we're trying to make decisions for us and our families and whoever else is impacted by this decision that we're trying to make. And so I think for the most part, they know we're not trying to be malicious if anything like that happens, but it's just something to consider. So, yeah, exactly. As far as auditions go, once you're out there, um, they can be exhausting from what I've heard because it's like a two week long interview, right? What tips do you have to be successful on audition rotations? Do you have any tips? Yeah, I do. And I took a little, a uh, few notes. So um, the first thing that someone told me, one of my favorite resident mentors when I was in medical school, she just she said, always be 10 minutes early to everything, whether it's clinic, resident didactics, um, if they have after hours, socials or get togethers or lectures, always be 10 minutes early. Um, that will really stand out. Another thing that I think is really important that sounds a lot easier than it actually is, is never complain. I mean, when you're doing away rotations, you are in the thick of it. You are applying your, you know, submitting your ERAS application, putting it all together, which is so much work. Um, you're in a new place with new people. 
new weather, you know, transportation might be a horrible situation, but just don't complain. I mean, don't be a, um, an uncomfortably positive person. Like don't, don't, yeah. people know that, know that it's a hard situation, but just don't, don't complain. Be pleasant to be around. Um, I think the third thing would be to just be genuine. Um, and don't, like I kind of already mentioned, don't be overly eager or uh, overzealous trying to impress who you're who you're working with. I would say some advice I got that I think was helpful is um, I think it takes about two weeks to kind of integrate into the department. So I was told to maybe try to avoid the two week away rotations, and that worked for me because um, I think. Um, I think sometimes it's hard to get to know the program for the program to get to know you and for you to really stand out in those short two weeks. It really, by the third week, you start hitting your stride, you know, people, you know, the staff, you know, you know, their names, um, and you can really just kind of integrate into the group. So that would be another thing I'd recommend is considering the four week away rotations if your schedule allows. Um, And then just, you know, be kind of a, it's, again, easier said than done. Just be a normal person. Try not to get, you know, overly uh, excited or nervous. Um, be fun to be around. Be helpful. Um, one thing I would try to do, which I don't know if it will work for every away rotation, but I would try to find ways to be helpful with clinic flow, whether that's like completely staying out of the way and just... Yeah following in people's shadows or whether that's, you know, printing a patient label or getting a patient to consent for a procedure or setting up a biopsy tray in a busy clinic um, or, you know, marking a site, you know, things like that, find ways to be helpful. Um, But I wouldn't jump into the away rotation doing that. I would probably start doing that about my third week or so once I knew the flow a little better. Yeah, that's all really great advice. And, you know, even even just the showing up 10 minutes early, I think that shows that you're on time for one, you're responsible. Um, but also, I feel like that really gives you an opportunity to um, to talk to other people who show up early, you know, to, yeah. to really get to know. Because when you're in the clinic and it's busy, you don't want to be talking about the football game or what you what movie you watched, right? But that's a good time for people to get to know you and to know that you're a normal person, right? Um, That's an underrated tip that you gave right there. So I love it. And I love the addition you made to it. Um, But yeah, these these are things that I'll have to listen to again, um, because some of them are hard, you know, just like the to be overly excited. We as medical students, we want to show that we're engaged and that we're interested. Do you have any tips for how to to come across as interested and engaged but not overzealous? I don't know if it's just something that you have to learn, um, but do you have any tips there? Yeah, I think it's um, like you alluded to, I think some of it is an innate kind of sense of how to read the room, but I do think some of it can be learned. Um, I was just actually talking to my fiance, who's an ophthalmology resident in He's working with rotators right now, and he was kind of talking to me about what he appreciates in a way rotator. And, um, you know, I think uh, someone who you just want to be, you would be friends with, you know, who's easy to be around, um, who isn't kind of trying to, like, name drop or I think just being a real person. But I I diverted from your question, which was how to not act overly excited. I think one way would be to maybe bring a notebook and take notes and then kind of knowing the opportune time to ask questions, um, maybe whether that's the end of the day or the next morning, like you mentioned, if that same attending or resident is there and be like, hey, I was interested in this patient we saw yesterday and um, Dr. Such and Such mentioned this therapy. Um, Is this something we use often? or, you know, I was interested in this condition. Can you tell me a little bit more about it or point me in a direction of somewhere to read about it? Or I was reading on up to date or visual DX and, you know, trying to come back with a little bit of information or, um, and then going home and reading about the patients that will, that will be helpful for you. 
just in the long run, um, you know, in your whole dermatology training, remembering the patients you see and remembering the pathology, but then also if it comes up again, you'll be aware of the condition and you'll know what to look for clinically. Um, and it'll show that you're taking the initiative after hours to continue learning. Totally. Um, you might have answered this already, but, and I, I don't know if you have anything to add, but is there anything else that you feel that residents or program directors appreciate in medical students? I think a, f- a few qualities that um, every program is looking for is someone who's hardworking, someone who's reliable, and someone who's teachable. So I think those three things can be demonstrated in a, in a way rotation. So with hardworking, things we've already talked about, being early, reading about your patients, knowing about the pathology, um, and maybe going the extra mile when the opportunity allows, you know, maybe doing a case report with an attending or presenting at grand rounds or presenting at a local conference. Those would be ways to show you're hardworking. Um, the second thing being reliable, which also kind of goes along with being a team player, um, never putting your co away rotators down, you know, they'll notice, I notice when away rotators are friends with their co co away rotators. Cause I think that speaks a lot to, um, how they are, you know, what their motivation is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, looking out for each other, making sure that if you've done a clinic with an attending and you know, um, where to find that clinic or, the names, I don't know, the names of their staff, you can pass that information along to your co-rotators. Um, those sorts of things can show that you're a good team player. This is just kind of a side note. I've, I have a couple of friends who are really interested in emergency medicine, and they referred me to a podcast called EM Clerkship. Um, and on there, he talks about how to crush your slows, which are the standard letters of, of, of evaluation that they do in emergency medicine. and they have some great tips. I'd recommend people go look, look at, um, just because it's different. Emergency medicine is different, but they talk about being a team player, talking about, you know, doing things that'll help your patients feel comfortable. Um, because really that's what, that's what clinicians appreciate and attendings appreciate is they want their, their patients to be satisfied and to be happy with their care. Um, anyway, I would just throw that out there to anybody who's, who's, uh, looking for some more advice on that. And they and that actually is a really good resource. Emergency medicine people applying to emergency medicine do they're the they're pros at away rotation because of the pandemic they were ultimately required to get their letters. So they they know they know the tips and tricks for away rotations. Yeah, no, it's a really good one. Um, So kind of shifting gears, I've been on rotations before where it's difficult to feel and to be a contributing member of the team. Um, I'll act more as a shadowing student rather than a medical student, um, you know, and I think part of that's just because of some of the clinics you rotate with are more of like a private practice setting, or they're just very busy, have a high patient volume. What tips do you have to get more hands-on? Should you get more hands-on, um, considering you kind of want to stay out of the way to make sure you don't want to get in the way, you don't want to be a burden. What are your tips there? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's tricky because you want to optimize your learning. You know, for one, you're paying to be there. You are there to experience the program and get the most out of the rotation. But then you also, like you mentioned, don't want to get in the way and don't want to be a burden. So it's it's tricky. And what I would do at the beginning of every shift is I would ask the attending or the resident I was working with, like, what is your preference for how you want me to function in clinic today? Like um, and then they usually have a really good response. They usually say, you know, why don't you just chat on me for the first few? And then if, depending on how clinic flows, maybe you can see a few on your own versus another attending will say they want you to see every other with the resident. And so it just depends attending to attending. Okay. And usually on away rotations, you're working with so many different people that a day of shadowing might be a little bit of a nice break. Um, yeah. So, so I would try not to change how they prefer their clinic be structured. I would kind of just go with the flow on away rotations, which is obviously different from third year clerk clerkship or, or you know, um, third year rotations, because at that point you really should be involved if you, if you want to get the most out of the rotation, but kind of see 
in a way rotation is a, a way, you know, it's, it's you integrating into their clinic flow. Um, however, however that looks. So I would totally. kind of just let it, let it play out naturally. If the attending prefers you shadow, then I would feel most comfortable shadowing. And there's still ways to be involved. You can carry around a notebook and take notes based on interesting things the attending says to a patient, or if you really like how an attending um, describes a disease or a treatment to a patient, you can write that down, jot that down quickly. So there's ways yeah. to stay involved. Yeah, you've mentioned a couple of times just being aware, you know, learning how to read the room and being aware and setting expectations with your attending. And that's the key, I think, to being a normal person is setting those expectations and just being aware of your your fellow co-audition rotator, your attending, your resident. Um, and then shifting gears again, first off, this year, ARIS applications could be submitted by students starting September 1st. And then programs are allowed to start reviewing applications on September 29th. Um, do you know, is there any reason why you would send in your application on September 1st versus September 28th, 29th? I, you know, I don't have an opinion. I am on the committee this year, so I don't know when you download the when you download the ERAS CV if it says when the student had submitted their application. Um, I'm not totally sure. Are you aware if it's going to say that? You know, I'm not sure, but I saw on Twitter, this guy had screenshotted a picture of how many applications they got. And it was like, it was like on this page, one out of, you know, one to 100 of 2000 applications. And I was thinking like, who gets that number one spot? You know, is it in alphabetical order or is it by submission date and time? I, I, I don't know, but I don't know yeah. if you even even give any thought to that. I haven't thought about it. And, and like you mentioned, the process has changed so much since I went through with the pandemic and the changes that went along with that, uh, that I'm not totally sure what, uh, because before we had a, you know, kind of a solid submit date that we had to have it in. Um, but it's obviously been extended now. And I'm not totally sure what that's going to look like. I wish I could kind of get back to you on that after I review some applications to know if they submitted September 1st or if they submitted September 28th. Okay. Thank you. And we'll do some research on our end and maybe on a future podcast episode, we'll circle back and, and figure that out. And any tips on balancing time on rotations with time to apply in ARIS? Did you take an easier rotation during that time? Did you do a research block? What, what did you do to balance, you know, giving good effort into your ARIS application as well as um, being successful on your rotation still? Yeah, again, being that type A person I am, I had done my personal, my first draft of my personal statement during the end of my research year and had a few mentors review it. Um, and then I was on and I believe I was on an ICU rotation. I don't think I was on a very chill rotation, but um, I had some time. I had one or two weeks off to kind of get everything together. And I know that not everyone can, um, not everyone can have that time, but if you can allow your schedule to have that one or two week break to just know that you have that time, even if you don't need it, I think that will take a lot of the weight and the stress off from the ERAS application. Um, but it's it's hard because I know a lot of programs require you to do a certain number of, of rotations fourth year. Um, but I think yeah. the theme of fourth year is that people understand that you're applying yeah. and people understand that your mind is elsewhere. And they're generally super supportive. I mean, I guess depending on your the program you're at, but my program at University of Utah was very supportive. And anytime I'd get an interview invitation, they would say, you know, just push me away and say, go, go answer, yeah. go take 30 or 40 minutes, even if we're in the middle of impatient rounds. So yeah, I think people get it. That's a, I've talked to Nick Flint. He's the on King. Um, that's kind of what people call him online. Right. And so he's talked about, I don't know. Do you know that about Nick? Uh -uh. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll chat a little later, but he's created this <laughs> online, like, on, like Anki deck community. Um, uh -oh. All the med students probably like, you know, year four and below know who Nick Flynn is. Um, if they use Anki at all, that flashcard deck. But um, yeah. 
anyway, I was talking to him and he talks, he speaks very highly about the university of Utah, even their medical school program. Um, I mean, especially that's what you were talking about. Um, just about how supportive they are of getting good opportunities for their students and, and helping them with their career goals. Um, so kind of back to Eris, how did you decide which programs to apply to? You mentioned this a little bit earlier, talking to mentors about which one were a good personality fit. What was that process like deciding which programs you really wanted to center your application around and target during your application? Yeah. So I had a friend, a prior DIGA president, uh, Morgan Murphy, tell me that I didn't need to apply to every single Durham program. And this was during my research year and I was just flabbergasted. Yeah. But what? I've always heard that you need to apply broadly. You need to, you know, get your hands in every single program just in case. And um, I think she's the first person that told me that. And it was actually good advice. But I did end up applying more broadly than I would have done if I had applied alone. Um, I was doing not a typical couples match. I was doing a pseudo couples match with uh, my partner in ophthalmology. He was on the um, San Francisco match. So he's earlier. Um, So it was kind of complicated. And basically, we just, you know, we sat down, we reviewed all the programs, all the regions. We decided a few, a few cities that we didn't see ourselves living in um, and didn't apply to programs in those cities. So that weeded out some programs. And I think I ended up applying to about 70 programs total. And and he applied to about 60 or 70. Um, But that really dictated where I applied. um, And it really dictated where he applied, you know, programs he was interested in that I really hadn't heard much about their DERB program and vice versa. Cool. Cool. How would you advise students to use their preference signals? I think in dermatology, we have three, is that right? Three to five preference signals. It sounds like something around there. How, you know, what, what do you guys use those for as an admissions committee? Um, And then how would you advise students to use those going forward? Yeah. And again, Johnny, I don't think I have a ton of input here, only from talking to other students that are my friends that I'm mentoring. including Nick. So I think from what it sounds like, um, you know, I'm not even going to try, I'm not even going to try to go there. But one, one student that I do talk to, I liked her approach and she, she's sending her preference signals, not to her home program, not to where she did her research here, but to programs where she has personal connections, people she's worked on projects with at other institutions or, um, people that one of her mentors knows personally and will reach out on her behalf, um, those sorts of things. And, and who, you know, a place where, um, you know, a program that has the things that she's emphasizing in her career path. So for me, if I was sending preference signals, I would really want to look into programs with really strong med-derm programs. Um, I know other people who are interested in MOS, so they want a really strong MOS basis. Uh, so I think those would be things to look into, you know, connections and then um, your career path and how would that program support you in that career path? Okay. Um, a little bit off topic, but um, did you ever consider applying into a med derm program? I, you know, I didn't. I did initially. And then during my research year, I got talked out of not doing it for myself personally. Um I, from what I've heard, there is a lot of internal medicine wards that goes into doing a med derm um, residency. And while I love medicine wards, I, I want to learn more about med derm, not necessarily medicine. Um, I think my prelim year was enough, you know, enough medicine to give me yeah. a really strong medicine foundation to build my derm knowledge upon. But I, I can't see myself now after having done my medicine prelim year, I can't see myself wanting to go back and do medicine wards and, you know, um, titrate diuretics and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, well, it's very, very important. And um, it might be a perfect fit for one person. It wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a good fit for me. Totally. That's good information to know that just because you're interested in med derm doesn't mean a med derm program is right for you. I think that's a really good perspective. What sort of transitional year is best for dermatology? Does that depend on kind of where you want to go 
yeah. you want to do med derm, is internal med better? If you want to do pediatric derm, is a pediatric better? Or if you want to do Mohs, is a surgery year better? What advice would you give there? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that's the um, exact point that I was going to make. Uh, depending on what you want to do kind of dictates what sort of prelim you're. I, I think one thing I can speak to more is um, finding a prelim year or transitional year. Uh, I think it's important to um, experience the program, which is kind of a bummer with the <laughs> virtual virtual interviews yeah. and talk to the residents and talk to the, you know, the people who are the interns and the, you know, the prelims, people that are going on to do other programs and see how well supported they feel. Um, because there were a lot of, uh, several programs I interviewed at where I felt that the prelims were treated kind of, um, you know, they would do more night shifts or they would do more time on wards compared to the categoricals. And I wanted to get a program that treated me the same as they treat their categoricals. Um, yeah. I think that's something important to ask about, ask the current prelims, ask, you know, try to tease out whether or not they seem happy or overworked. And I think there's a fine balance between having a rigorous year where you learn, but not drowning, um, yeah. somewhere, somewhere in the middle and, and you hit the nail on the head with whether to do prelim or, um, TY or pediatric surgery. I think those are the things okay. to think about is what you want to do in your future. Great. Thank you. What do you look for when interviewing applic uh, applicants in dermatology? Is there, it, it probably goes back to some of those things that you mentioned earlier about, you know, reliability, um, team player. Those are kind of hard things though, to gauge on an interview, especially virtual. What are things that you look for when you're interviewing applicants? So I, I haven't, we haven't started interviewing yet, obviously, that we, our interview dates are in January. Um, so I haven't been on the other side of it yet, which yeah. is unfortunate. I have been on the other side of prelim interviews. And I will say it's hard virtually. The virtual platform yeah. is a hard, but I do think that, um, especially over the last year or two, we've all gotten so much better at Zoom and interacting virtually. Yeah. So, so I think it's gotten better, but it is hard to, um, it is hard to be who you truly are on a virtual platform. Things that I think I would look for, especially as a current resident, things I would look for in my co-residents would just be people who are easy to be around, easy to work with. And I think, I personally think that's easier to gauge at an in-person interview. Um, but I think you can tell a lot from letters and um, an ERAS application, as silly as that sounds, uh, I think you can tell a lot about a person based on their application. So yeah, I think that's yeah. what I would say is just someone I would want to be friends with, someone that's easy to be around, that would be easy to work with. Somebody that you'd want to have a barbecue with after, after a busy day in clinic. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't be best friends with everybody, but just someone who's there's not, you know, a, a negative aspect or, you know, a negative addition to the program yeah. who doesn't, who doesn't drag the program down, who makes it better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, from who I've talked to, that seems like a common theme is, is we're going to be working with you for the next three years and we want to enjoy it. We want to enjoy that time that we have with you. So we're, we're going to pick somebody that we um, enjoy being around. So Yeah. That was my third thing. Teachable. Someone who's teachable. Oh. Yeah, someone who, you know, you can come off as a know-it-all pretty easily. So yeah. someone who's humble and teachable, I think that's an important an important thing. Yeah. That's probably a part of that overexcitedness too, is, is oftentimes when we're overexcited, we're not really teachable because we want to show our knowledge. So, oh, yeah. And it's like a, a third and fourth year, you know so much. The fourth yeah, is, random the stuff. Know way more, the fourth years know way more about dermatology, you know, they're because they've been thinking about it for, I mean, doing away rotation after away rotation, you guys know a lot. So it's a fine balance between demonstrating that knowledge, but um, being humble and not, you know. Yeah. So to your point, you were talking about, you can tell a lot about a person from their, um, you know, their personal statement, their heiress application, their letters of recommendation. We wanted to talk about building your story as an applicant, right? Like building your brand, um, 
who you are so that people can can feel that through a virtual interview, they can feel that through your Eris application. How do you craft that story? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's important to um, really critically think what's important to you in a program um, and what qualities you can offer to a program and have those be reoccurring themes in your ERAS application, your personal statement, and your letters. And I think that's an important thing, just kind of, you know, consistency. So it seems yeah. more genuine. It seems like this is truly who you are. This is what people are recognizing in you. This is what you're recognizing in yourself. Is that something that you can kind of, you know, prep your letter writers and by giving them your personal statement and saying, you know, these are kind of some things I'm trying to highlight about myself. Can you touch on those? Is that normal? Is that kosher? Yeah, I would recommend that. I think that's a great idea. And that's what I did with all my all my letter writers. I sent them my EROS application. Well, not my EROS application because it wasn't totally done, but I did send them my preliminary personal statement um, and my CV at the time. Um, and I think that's really important to tell them what you think is uh, important about like what you what you find a strength in your application so that they can highlight the same same sorts of things. And some people, the letter writers actually will ask you to write the letter for them and then they'll edit it and submit it. So that's another situation you might find yourself in and something to prepare for is having to write a letter about yourself. Which can be That's a, a hard one. Situation. Yeah. I didn't have to do it, thank goodness, but a lot yeah. of people do. Yeah, I mean, I can see that being really advantageous, you know, because you can really craft it to what you want to say, but at the same time, it it's a lot of pressure to to do that and to be authentic. Um I, I feel like that would be a hard thing for me to do. Yeah. But. Yeah, like remain humble but also also like <laughs> really elevate your experience. Yeah. And as a person. Yeah, it's a delicate balance. I can't imagine doing it. I couldn't have done it. When I was applying to medical school, I had somebody, t they were speaking to a group of pre-med students and they mentioned, when we look at your application, he had been on an admissions committee. He's like, when we look at your application, you need to check all the boxes. You need to have some research. You need to have good grades. You need to have volunteer experiences and shadowing hours. He's like, you need to check all the boxes. He's like, you don't need to be, you know, the two standard deviations above the mean on research experiences, but you need to check all the boxes. And then you need to be memorable in some way. Is that true? Do you feel that's true? And if so, what does that mean, be memorable? How, how do you build that into your story? Yeah, that's so tough. Um, I, I think that is true, unfortunately, in dermatology. I think we are starting to lean away from the board scores, especially with board scores going to pass-fail. Um, and I think programs are starting to, you know, really not emphasize that as much as we used to. But I just think people in dermatology are stellar. Every yeah. dermatology applicant is stellar. Everyone, I don't know, everyone I met on the interview trail, I'm like, I cannot believe we're going to be colleagues one day. You are the coolest person and you're yeah. going to be a force in this field. Um, so I think it's going to be, I, I'm actually a bit nervous to be on the selection committee because I think it's going to be a bit, a bit hard to really, um, I think it's going to come down to the nitty gritty, like the details yeah. of people's lives that's going to set them apart. Because everyone is so interesting and competitive and capable and um, being memorable. Uh, I think I got asked more about the hobbies section on my ERAS application than I thought I would. So yeah. maybe if you have a weird hobby, don't be afraid to put it on there. Um, I think my program director told me the most interesting application he's ever read was a... Um, a person who put that they were interested in like cannibalistic plants and they had like a cannibalistic plant farm. So I didn't do anything like that. And I didn't have anything like that on my, on my uh, hobbies and interests section. But um, I've heard, you know, even my, one of my friends put why she loves wine and cheese. And that was just a topic of conversation for you to talk about. If you can just have that one, what it takes is to like catch the attention of one person. Um, who's reading your application to get you the interview. And then when you're in the interview, have, you know, a few good conversations, a few good, genuine conversations. Um, and I think what that comes down to is having mutual interest. So that gives you an opportunity yeah. to have mutual interest with people. 
that hobbies and interest set interest section. So, so now I'm curious, what did you put on your hobbies and interests? Oh my gosh, the typical stuff you would expect a person you born and raised in Utah to put, you know, skiing, trail running, you know, all the outdoor stuff. Yeah. Um, So when I'd go to a program where they didn't have those things, they're like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in Chicago? You know, when it's been cold outside. Um, So I think really thinking through those, a lot of people put, reading but maybe if you could be more specific about what you like to read um I put that I'm really into classic rock music and going to classic rock concerts so that was a big topic of conversation uh those were those were my things that's cool I one skill there's a couple skills I wish I had as a medical student one is I wish I spoke Spanish because we have a lot of Spanish speaking population here and then the second thing is that I knew more classic rock music so that when I when Doctors always are asking me what, who, who the artist is, and I have no clue. So that's probably a really good, really good skill to have. Yeah. We're getting close to the end. Um, and, you know, after interviews, you put in your, you put in your uh, match preferences, and then you have time to sit back and relax. Not really, not really relaxing. Um, but I'm curious, um, should you have a backup? as a dermatology applicant, should you have a backup, you know, also applying into another specialty? Is, is that what you would advise somebody to do or should you be all in? Um, I think that again, this would come back to mentors and having mentors who you trust, who can be brutal, you know, brutally honest with you, um, knowing your application and knowing your strengths and weaknesses. If you have mentors telling you, you know, I think you should on, be on the safe side and dual apply. Um, I would dual apply. But I think if a mentor tells you your application's great, you're going to be a dermatologist, I think I would trust that gut feeling too. Um, it's hard to know. It's going to take a lot of introspection and being able to know how strong of an applicant you are, how confident in your application you feel. Um, and it comes down to funds again because <laughs> – applications are not cheap and applying to more programs and interviewing at more programs is expensive though it's better right now with the virtual interviews but it still takes time and still takes money um and it could potentially go back to in person when you're applying so yeah so i think it just uh it's kind of a personal preference i did not personally do apply but i know people who have and it didn't set them back. They did end up matching into dermatology and everything worked out, but it maybe gave them that comfort blanket of knowing that if they didn't match into dermatology, they had another option. Um, and an option that they liked, you know, just as much as dermatology or their ultimate path was still going to be dermatology. They were just going to, you know, do pediatrics first or internal medicine first. So. Totally. Um, so one of the things I think about my brother's an internal med resident. And one thing that I was a little bit jealous about him is during his fourth year of, of medical school, he could just, he didn't do any audition rotations. It's not, it wasn't really what his school promoted and it was during COVID and they they didn't, I don't think in that specialty, they really do a lot of audition rotations. And so he just did a ton of electives in all sorts of kinds of medicine which is really cool to me to be able, because it's really the last chance that you get to see some things in depth. I mean, I guess you do rotations during residency, but do you have any electives that you really enjoyed or recommend for dermatology applicants once their applications are in that they can do during their last year? That's a good question. One, one thing I got asked a lot on my prelim interviews was whether or not I had spent time in the ICU. So while that's not something we would typically think would be important for dermatology, I think it is very important for prelim years um, because you inevitably will rotate through an ICU. For dermatology in particular, um, I think if there's, you know, an avenue to do like a minor procedure clinic to get more hands-on excisions and suturing, that would be great. Um, I just was trying to see as much as medicine as I could. So I did like a hepatology rotation and um I did emergency medicine because I hadn't done that yet. I and I really still feel like there's so many gaps in my medical knowledge because I haven't seen everything. Yeah. I never rotated through hemonc. I never rotated through nephrology and 
um, just trying to build, trying to, trying to see things that you haven't had the opportunity to see in medical school. So it'll be, like you mentioned, it's your last, your last opportunity and medical school is such a cool, such a cool experience. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was thinking about this, I was, one of the things that I've wrote or I've shadowed before is I shadowed a rheumatologist and that was a really cool experience. And I, and I've been thinking, I want to do that again, my fourth year, but do you get that a lot of rheumatology um, experience as a resident? I know you see uh, manifestations of rheumatic conditions on the skin, but do you spend much time with rheumatology in general as a resident or would that be one to consider? That's a, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that would be an awesome elective to do if you have the time. During my research year, I rotated with rheumatologists for a few of my projects and I found it really beneficial to just pick their brain like, hey, when you see psoriatic arthritis patients, what do you wish dermatologists ask these patients when they see them in derm oh. clinic before they, you know, being able to pick their brain about the, you know, the arthroscopic or the, um, the joint, joint complaints of derm- dermatologic diseases. Um, so there were some programs that had, they had really cool overlap um, room derm clinics where both the rheumatologist and uh-huh. the dermatologist were present and they were seeing patients together. Uh, I thought that was really cool. So you can, there are a bunch of avenues for that. Um, you talk a lot with rheumatologists, but I don't feel like I, at the University of Utah, at least, we aren't rotating with the rheumatologists. We interact with them through, you know, um, secure messaging through EMRs and such and collaboration on patients. But I wish, I wish there was a bit more time in rheumatology clinic. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. No, I was just thinking about that. I'm thinking about what, what all I would like to spend my elective time doing. So thank you. Um, so we're kind of getting towards the end, but is there anything else that you'd like to add that you would like to leave, uh, just general advice to medical students interested in dermatology or just this whole DIGA community in general? Yeah, I think have fun, let yourself, um, you know, have a good time and enjoy the process because looking back, it goes so quickly and I know it's so easy being on the other end of it and saying that it will all work out, but it will all work out. And if dermatology is where you're meant to be, um, I am a firm believer that that is that the you know universe will manifest that, and um, passion goes a long way. So great. Well, thanks so much. We really appreciate your time. Um, thanks so much, Doctor Topham. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DIGA podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to dermeinterestpod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 